So, one minute my life is filled with fun. I'm at the top of my game. My relationships are growing. They're fulfilling. Nothing's going to bring me down. And then something comes along to mess everything up. Been there? I mean, you show up at work only to find you've been given notice, or you're just getting by, you're paying the bills week to week to week to week to week with no promise of a better tomorrow. Maybe you're in a relationship that's just going nowhere, or you find out that somebody that you trusted just lied to you. So frankly, you're defeated, depressed, and discouraged, and you're hopeless and you're tired and disillusioned. Your heart's empty. Your life's lonely. You don't know what to do next. You feel like giving up. Outside, <laughs> you put on a brave face. But inside, you're going, why bother? And you just don't see any sign things are going to get better. When, when you look for signs that your life is worth living, you end up thinking, well, maybe it's not. And you're thinking, I'm so tired. I'm just so tired of trying to forge ahead. Why should I? So are you here today with some challenges that are frankly overwhelming you? Well, God has a message for you today. And here's his message. There's hope. There's hope because God makes a place for his people. God makes a place for his people. Open your Bibles to Genesis 1. Hopefully you won't have a hard time finding that. It's at the very front of everything, right, in your Bible. It's after the flaps and way before the maps in the back. And by the way, here at CBC, we just believe the Bible, right? We believe it from the flaps in the front to the maps in the back. We believe the whole thing. So I just want to say welcome today. Good morning. We're glad that you're here. We want to especially welcome the guests here. And, and if you're watching online, we especially want to welcome you as well. At CBC, we say our mission is inviting people to new life in Christ, and then we ask a question. So what does new life in Christ actually look like? And we say it looks like this. It looks like you're a beloved child, a self-feeder, a servant, an investor, a discipler, and a missionary. And uh, today's message is focused on this beloved child piece, this part. Because today, I think we're going to see just how loved we are. You know, if you're here and you're hopeless, you need to understand you are loved. God takes great delight in making a place for His people. And that means that he has a future, a place, he has a home for you. Now, last week, Pastor Chad launched our Genesis series, and he reminded us that we can say, God made me, he knows me, he loves me, he has a plan for me, and I am his. And he said, before you know who you are, you need to know whose you are. If you weren't here, go check it out. It's online. It's a great message. But what we're finding out is Genesis is a very controversial book. I mean, you've got theism versus atheism. You've got the Bible versus science. You've got creation versus evolution. And people have very strong opinions. But even if you believe in God and you say, I believe in the Bible and I believe in creation, there are more controversies because which brand of creationism do you believe? You know, after last week's message, people want to know, well, Pastor Chad, what do you personally believe? And where does CBC stand? And Chad's posted a blog on the CBC website that lays out the main views that believers, that uh, people believe about creation and, and kind of where he lands. I mean, because you have the 24-hour interpretation, the historical creationism, the, the day-age theory, the gap theory, theistic evolution, literary framework thesis. 
And Chad wrote this, um, I personally find myself subscribing to the 24-hour interpretation theory with historic creationism coming in at a close second. But having said that, let me just say, we don't believe you have to subscribe to the 24-hour theory to be a part of our church family. We don't think that you should be rigid and dogmatic about any one theory because God didn't disclose all the details of the creation account. And he's the only one who truly knows the what, the how, and the when of creation. But we do need to draw one hard and fast line. Any view of creation that excludes God as the all-powerful creator who was personal and involved in his creation needs to be rejected because the Bible says God did it. <laughs> It was personal. It was intentional. But when we're in God's presence, He's not going to ask us with the eject button in hand, are you a young earth creationist or an old earth creationist? And if you give the wrong answer, He pushes the button and boom, you're out. And on the blog, Chad asked a question, why then would I desire to spend hours in debate with other Christians over creation views when there are thousands of people around us who daily do not even know that God made them, knows them, loves them, and offers them new life in Christ. See, godly Bible-believing and Jesus-loving people can graciously discuss what Genesis 1 and 2 mean without viewing one another as ill-informed, Bible-doubting, compromising followers of Christ. So people who have a variety of views are welcome here at CVC. Let's not be divisive about these things. Let's not make one particular view the litmus test for Christian orthodoxy. So, so with that in mind, as background, I want us to read Genesis chapter 1, and we'll start with verse 1 and go down through verse uh, 25. And when I come to the words, and God said, okay, I want you to just say that part with me, okay? And God said, you say it with me. So here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, good, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together He called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Then the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, which is, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said... Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with 
swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. This is an amazing chapter. And when I read something like this, I just go, I got a question. Time out. Question, question, question. I mean, do you have questions as you read this? I have dozens and dozens of questions. And even though I've been studying the Bible for decades, I still don't have answers to all these questions. But for today, three questions jump off the page to me as I read through Genesis 1. Uh, questions about good, questions about days, and questions about order. Questions about good. I want us to look at the big picture. What is God doing here? Is he just kind of making this up as he goes along? Well, the answer, of course, is no. On day one, God knows what's coming at the end of day six. He's going to make people at the end of day six, right? So he is preparing, in Genesis 1, a place for his people. And you know what? That is good news for those of us who are here losing hope. Why is that? Well, what kind of place is it? It's good. The word good shows up in verses 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, and 25. And then later in Genesis chapter 1, after God makes man and woman, he says, it's very good. Very good. Now, think about it. One of the most common objections to our faith is, why would a good God create a world full of suffering? Here's the answer. God didn't create a world full of suffering and pain. God originally created everything good. The Hebrew word for good is tob. It means beautiful, moral, orderly, harmonious, pleasant, bountiful. See, God made this earth to be a, a good habitat, a good place for his people to live in perfect fellowship with him and in perfect fellowship with each other. And that's awesome. When you, when you see a purple, orange, yellow, red sunset, or you see a field full of flowers, or you see a breathtaking mountain view, what does that tell you about the Creator? See, the goodness and the beauty of His creation tells us that God is good and God is beautiful. He is giving us a glimpse of His goodness through the creation. And if you're here today without hope, this should be some comfort for you. I would just say get out of here today and take a walk somewhere and see God in nature and see his goodness there. I love what Charles Spurgeon has to say. He's a pastor that spoke in the 19th century in England. He says, I like to see my Savior on the hills and by the shores of the sea. I hear my Father's voice in the thunder and listen to the whispers of his love and the cadence of the sunlit waves. These are my Father's works. 
and therefore I admire them. I seem all the nearer to him when I'm among them. You see, when you're in a good creation, then you're near the good creator. Now, some super spiritualists might say, well, we shouldn't focus on the creation. We should focus on the creator. Okay, but suppose you were a great artist. It might be a stretch for some of us, but suppose you're a great artist and your son or a daughter comes into your house and says, you know what? I'm not going to look at the pictures you've painted because I only want to think about you. Wouldn't that seem strange and kind of dishonoring to you and your art? See, the art you've created has something of you in it. And if your child admires your art and says that it's good, then your child is honoring you and saying that you're good. See, see, God says that all that he made was good. And if he says so, so should we. And when we do that, we honor him and we're close to his goodness. Questions about good. Questions about days. Now, obviously here you've got six days of creation. Well, that's actually for us today, five and a half, because God's last act of creation on day six was to create Adam and Eve. But we're going to save that for next week. The big question here is, are these literal 24-hour, ordinary-length days? Or is the word day used here in a figurative sense that might allow for longer periods of time, like we use the word in the day of George Washington or something? You know, I love a quote from Augustine. He says this, What kind of days these are is difficult or even impossible for us to imagine, to say nothing of describing them. So if a guy like that who's a genius Bible scholar and a giant IQ says, I can't explain it, then you know what? We're not going to be explaining it to you. But it's interesting. Very committed Bible scholars who are very passionate about Christ disagree very vehemently about this issue of days, the length of the day. And no matter where we might land on the issue, we need to work with other brothers and sisters in a context of respect and civility. Because it's possible for us to have unity without uniformity. Now, the people that want to make the days longer than 24 hours, some indeterminate period of time, often make a point that day six would be a really, really, really jam-packed day. Because if you peek ahead to Genesis chapter 2, you can see that on day six, God... Ready for this? Created the animals, made Adam, planted a garden in Eden, made the tree spring up and grow in the garden, placed Adam in the garden to work and keep it, declared that it was not good for Adam to be alone, brought every beast of the field to Adam to be named, brought every bird of the heavens to Adam to be named, put Adam to sleep, made a woman from the part of Adam's side, and then brought Eve to Adam and then um, performed the first wedding ceremony and, and then they went off on their honeymoon. I mean, that's a long day. And about just naming the... Animals and the birds, old earth creationists say, if the names of the animals and the birds were to be meaningful, they would have to describe something about the animal. That means Adam would have observed the animal to think about an appropriate name. To name all the animals in one 24-hour day, Adam would have been Dr. Doolittle on speed and steroids. <laughs> Well, maybe, but in spite of all of that, personally, I feel most comfortable with the 24-hour day view of Genesis 1. Maybe the animals that God led Adam to name were just the ones in the garden. We don't know for sure. It's possible. But, but 
But the word for day in the Hebrew, yom, is interesting. Every time the word yom is used with a number, or every time it is used with the phrase evening and morning, anywhere in the Old Testament, it means an ordinary 24-hour day. And in Genesis 1, for the six days of creation, the Hebrew word yom is used with a number and the phrase evening and morning. And so we have this omnipotent God who's able to speak and create something out of nothing. And you know what? If he wants to do it in a 24-hour day and get it all done, he can do it. So why does the earth appear so old then? Well, just as God created Adam and Eve with the appearance of age, he could have done that with the entire planet as well. Why did God take six days? I mean, because an infinite, omnipotent God could have created everything in one day or one hour or one nanosecond. And why the six days? He created the six days for his people, just like he created the planet for his people. He created in six days and then rested for one as a pattern for us because he knows, hey, these people are going to need their rest. So not only does God make a place for his people, he makes a day of rest for his people. Okay, so we got questions about good, we got questions about days, we got questions about order. Now, the biggest issue, at least for me, is how do you get light on day one before the sun, moon, and stars are created on day four? That's a good question. And there are lots and lots of ways that people try to answer this. I mean, some people just take Genesis 1 as a poem. They say, well, you're not supposed to interpret it literally. Don't press the passage for the details. What's important here is this is a poem. It's meant to be interpreted metaphorically. Uh, he Just know he created everything. He was personally involved. He's omnipotent. And, that, and that's a possible, plausible explanation. But the people that hold to the 24-hour day view, when you ask them where did the light come from on day one, they say, well, maybe God set up some other temporary source of light on day one until day four. Maybe God himself was the source of light. Because after all, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 21 that in the future, God himself will be the light in heaven. That one day the sun will not be needed because the glory of God will be the light. Maybe he was the source of light from day one to day four. God's not dependent on the sun to produce light. The sun is dependent on God, not the other way around. All right, so, so we got question after question after question after question after question here in Genesis chapter 1. Questions about orders and days and good. And if you think about it, you want to just write this down. Order, days, and good. <laughs> Remember we started the message about hopelessness and despair? If that's where you're living and you don't know how you could take another step, you need to know something about God God is working relentlessly and lovingly and purposefully to order the days of your life for good. You get this? Our awesome God is ordering the days of your life to bring about glory for him and good for you because that's what he does. That's just who he is. That's our sovereign creator God. So, don't doubt 
on day one, two, or three of your life, when your day six is coming, and it will one day be very good. And you go, well, I don't see it. I don't feel the good. I don't see the good. I know that by faith I'm supposed to believe it, but my experience tells me otherwise. Why does my life hurt so bad? And here's the answer. We are not living in Genesis 1 and 2 right now. We are right now suffering the after effects of something we call the fall. I mean, think of every chapter in the whole Bible as a book, as a book, okay? The first, first three chapters, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, would be bookends on your left. And the last three chapters, Revelation 20, 21, and 22, would be the bookends on your right. In order for you to really embrace what's going on in Genesis chapter 1, in light of where we're living today, you got to kind of have an overview of the whole Bible. So, so I just want to give you like a flyover of the whole Bible from 30,000 feet, maybe 60,000, maybe 100,000 feet. It's going to be fast. Because think about it. The word beginning, in the beginning God created, the word beginning in Genesis 1.1 establishes the fact that God has a plan in mind. If there's a beginning, there's a continuing and there will ultimately be a conclusion. And so the creation is part of a, of a bigger plan. We're all moving towards some kind of a, of a destination. I mean, just take it. it, it You've got creation, and that's covered in, in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. I mean, God creates, and we've already talked about how everything is good. Everything is perfect. And at the end of day six, he goes, it's very good. And so we learn about creation. We learn about God here. But it didn't stay that way because when you get to Genesis chapter three, and we'll talk about that in a subsequent message, but in Genesis chapter three, we experience this thing called the fall. Temptation comes. And Adam and Eve rebel against God and they sin. And catastrophe happens, not only for Adam and Eve, but catastrophe happens throughout the whole planet. And, and really what you have, and this is the, the bookend at the beginning of the Bible. And really what you have in the rest of the, of the Old Testament is people going, how can we fix the mess that we're in? Because we're in a big mess. Maybe government will fix it. Uh-uh. Maybe... Business can fix it. I can make a lot of money. No. Maybe education could fix it. No. Maybe religion can fix it. No. Nothing fixes it. It's a big mess. And God says, oh, I'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. I am going to send a rescuer. And so what you have at the very center of the Bible are these stories. The book's called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The stories about Jesus Christ. Because he says, I'm going to send a rescuer. I'm going to send somebody who's going to die on a cross in your place for your sins so that you can be forgiven and you can be reconnected with God. You can have a relationship with God. You can be forgiven. Your life could come back together. And you could be on the path to good again. And ultimately very good. There's a rescue. Jesus has come to rescue his people 
And you know what else? He's come to rescue the place, the heavens and the earth. Jesus is the central character in the story of creation. Because one day when Christ returns, the heavens and the earth will be restored. And meanwhile, we're waiting. And the planet is waiting. Let me, let me just share something with you about the creation that's found in Romans chapter 8. It's written by a guy named Apostle Paul. And it explains some of this hopelessness that we feel. Some of the suffering that we're going through. Listen to what it says. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. That's the fall. It got messed up. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will one day be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Listen, you feel hopeless today? That's just understandable because we're all groaning together. Even the planet is groaning and waiting, but it's waiting with hope. Hope for what? restoration. Let's fast forward to the last three chapters of the Bible. So far we've talked about creation and fall and rescue, but, but there's more coming. In Revelation chapter 20, the last three chapters of the Bible, Revelation 20, third from last, talks about justice. And one day justice will be served and all the wrongs will be made right. And then you get to Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. Uh, it's just amazing because what we learn there is about the restoration of all things. In other words, what God originally intended will be restored and it will all be very good again for all of us. And I don't think it's any coincidence that the first three chapters of the Bible set up the last three chapters of the Bible. That chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis talk about creation and chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation talk about the recreation. I just love this. At the end of the biblical story, Jesus says in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 5, Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus is going to purge the creation from the results of the fall. And what has been corrupted in the planet and in your life will be declared very good again. And the good news is, is that Jesus is Lord over the chaos of fallen creation. And he has conquered sin and death. So where, where are we going here? God takes his fallen creation and he's, he restores it. He doesn't abandon the creation. Why? Because we have a God who loves to make a place for his people. We messed up everything, including the creation. But in Christ, the creation is restored and this means that you can live with hope. Listen, you don't see any sign things are going to get better. And you're thinking, I'm so tired, very tired. I don't know how to forge ahead. Why should I? Here's why. If you know Christ, there's a land that is fairer than day. And by faith, we can see it afar. For the Father waits over the way to prepare us a dwelling place there. Listen, 
Hang on. Hang on. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take it to myself that where I am, there you may also be. I mean, do you see it in Genesis 1 and 2? God makes a place for his people and it got messed up, but Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven. What's he doing right now? He's preparing a place for his people. And one day he's going to come back to restore this creation because he's preparing a place for his people and right now he's preparing a people for the place. Listen, you have not tasted an awesome orange yet. You with me? I mean, the best orange that you've ever tasted has been wounded by the fall. And you've not seen a perfect sunset yet. And you've not taken a real walk on a real beach yet. The most beautiful rose that you've ever seen or smelled has been tainted, marred, and desecrated by the fall. But that rose will be pristine once again. You haven't had a truly fulfilling relationship yet. No matter how great your marriage is or no matter how close you are to your kids or grandkids. You haven't had a truly fulfilling relationship yet. But it's coming. It's coming. Restoration. Recreation. Renewal. It's coming. See, if you don't believe that God will one day restore all things, you should want it to be true. I think there's something inside everybody that walks on this planet that longs for restoration. Right? Because relationships will be healed and guilt will be gone and sin will be surrendered to the Savior and your conflict with your kids will be over. But the restoration of all things... You know, it just doesn't even make sense without the beginning. It doesn't make... The, Revelation 21 and 22 just don't make sense without Genesis 1 and 2. One of the reasons that I believe in creation is because I long for restoration. What, what, what we long for makes us believe that there was something perfect that we were made for, which is creation. So you got to look at the big picture, creation, fall, rescue, restoration. It's a package deal. You know what? And I want in on it. And I want you in on it. Okay, okay. So, Rick, you seem like a reasonably well-educated guy. Why do you believe that God created rather than believing in evolution? Well, there are a lot of reasons. You know, there's so many factors are necessary for life to just exist on this planet. We get too close to the sun as a planet, we'd fry. We get too far away as a planet, we're going to freeze. If we don't spin, then we, we all die. And we've prepared a video that you can go online and look at. It's called The Privileged Planet. And it tells us that there are just too many factors for us to believe that this happened by chance. So you can go online and take a look at that. You know, the design demands a designer. The order demands an or organizer. The effects demand a cause, the uncaused cause. I mean, something didn't come from nothing. You know, and the irreducible complexity, that teaches us that certain biological systems like the eye and flagella are too compl complex to have evolved through natural selection. And therefore, it's more reasonable to believe in intelligent design than in natural selection. 
All those reasons help me believe. But the most compelling reason why I believe in creation is very simple. It's Jesus. See, the cornerstone of our faith is something that happened at the hinge point of history through Jesus. I mean, right here. The, the, the question always is, who is Jesus to you? See, anytime we can tie the story of creation to Jesus, we've done everybody, Christians and non-Christians alike, an incredible service. And if in the course of our conversation we discover that our friends believe that Genesis 1 and 2 is just a myth, then we're not going to get belligerent. We're not going to get argumentative. We just simply point to Jesus. We say, okay, 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 but who is Jesus to you? <laughs> okay, I get that, but who is Jesus to you? And suppose they say, well, what about the dinosaurs? You say, well, you know, I'm not totally sure about how to talk about that. I mean, obviously they existed, and obviously they're now extinct. And I'm kind of glad because I like the fact that no velociraptor lives in my backyard. You know, that's cool. Um, why'd they become extinct? I don't know. Maybe it was because of the Great Flood, or maybe they became extinct between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. But, but what about Jesus? <laughs> Who is Jesus to you? See, we just keep going back to Jesus. And we say, here's why I believe that God created. Here's why I believe Genesis 1 and 2 actually happened. Because in the Gospels, the stories about Jesus, he talks about creation. And according to the Gospels, he believed that Genesis wasn't a myth, that it's true, that it's history. Now, let me just give you a little taste of this. In Mark 10, Jesus says that he believes in creation. In Matthew 19, he talks about the fact that God made Adam and Eve. In Matthew 24, he refers to Noah and the flood. In Matthew chapter 10, he talks about the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus did not treat these stories as myths. He took them as straightforward history. He described the events just like Genesis said they happened. So we say to our friends, hey, listen, <laughs> if Jesus believed that Genesis, including creation, was actual history, then you know what? I believe that it's actual history. Why? Because anybody that can predict, predict their own death and resurrection and then actually pull it off, I'm just believing everything they say. <laughs> the cornerstone of our faith is not a particular creation theory. The cornerstone of our faith is something that happened in history, in the life of Jesus Christ. He came into this world, he walked on the earth, he represented God, he was God, and he rose from the dead that's what our faith is based on. But without creation and the fall, without Genesis 1, 2, and 3, why did he come? Why did he live here? Why did he die? And why did he rise again? Listen, that makes no sense without creation and the fall. He did it to prepare a people for a place because God loves to make a place for his people. Now, if you're here, you're going, okay. I'm looking at my program and there are three fill in the blanks. And, and he's been talking for 35 minutes already. <laughs> What's up with that? Here we go. Because God has made a place for his people, we live with awe. A-W-E. Because the creation is good. Because God has made a place for his people, we live with care. We take care of the planet, right? God made it. He still loves it, even though it's flawed. And then because God has made a place for his people, we live with hope. 
In the beginning, out of his love for a people yet to be born, God prepared a place for his people. And now, out of his love, he's preparing a people for his place. Are you here today allowing God to prepare you for that place? Here's the takeaway today. God makes a place for his people and a people for his place. Maybe you're here today and you're going, man, I am not sure that I'm ready for that place. But I want to make sure that I will forever be with God in his place for his people. So today I want to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as my rescuer. You know, in your program, there's a prayer. It's on the screen. Dear God, I acknowledge you are the creator. If you're, hey, look, if you're here and you know Christ, stop folding your stuff up and pray for the people that need to pray this prayer. Pray that they will pray it. Dear God, I acknowledge you are the creator. Like Adam and Eve, I have rebelled, fallen, and sinned against you. I don't deserve a place with you. Yet in spite of my sin, you love me so much that you sent Jesus to die on the cross so I could be forgiven. I believe that he rose from the dead and is now preparing a place for me. I receive Jesus as my rescuer. Please change me and prepare me to live with you in your place forever. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here and you've never received Christ, today is the day of salvation and now is the acceptable time. Pray that prayer. Give your heart to Christ. God loves you so much. He wants to lift you out of hopelessness. And he's made a place for his people. There are other things that you can check on here. Father, I pray that you would allow us to live with hope and even joy in the midst of the fallenness and the mess of the life that we have now. Because we see the end of the story. We see how awesome creation was and how awesome recreation will be. God, that you love us so much that you've made a place for your people. I pray for those that are here right now that are wounded and depressed and discouraged and hopeless. Give them hope, Lord. Let them see your goodness. That you are ordering their days to bring about good. Help us, Lord. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, if you prayed that prayer, if you want to communicate in any way to us, let me encourage you to um, check a box on that program. Put it in the basket when it comes around. Or if you're watching online, you could send an email to us. We would love to connect with you.